Chapter 13 0838 hours, the 12th of October, 2047. Estralita. Shira hovered impatiently by the bathroom door, listening to the rush of the steam shower. Grandfather was so slow this morning, she'd almost believe he was dragging his heels on purpose. She put her head to the door and called. Grandfather, McAllister's waiting. His love came back. Nine thirty, he said, cheerily. It's a little past eight thirty-five. The man's likely still having his breakfast. She paced to the door where their small packs lay ready. Oh, to be out of this place, if only for two days. She took a white plastic card from her pocket and examined the signature flowing across the bottom. Suzanne Ellison. A gracious hand flowing from an open, friendly nature. Though she could be difficult when crossed, judging by her closed teas, however did she marry Ellison? Dear Shearer, she read, I'm appalled at my husband's keeping you cooped up in that little place without a break. I cordially invite you to spend a couple of days with us at Bent Nose Peak. Your grandfather, too, if he would care for company. I do hope you choose to make it. I would very much like a chance to meet you and to talk with you about the board and so much more. Please say yes. Truly, Suzanne Ellison. But why? she'd asked McAllister. Who'd delivered it? McAllister shrugged. There's no fathoming the big boats, was all he'd say. But he didn't fool Shearer. He knew why, all right. But he wasn't telling. He was such a strange man. Not unfriendly. Close. Since that night they'd met down at level six, They'd scarcely exchanged a word. He kept to himself, saying no more than he need to anyone, only banalities, giving nothing away. A cipher. Not to everybody else, though. They all thought of him as Ellison's gopher. The way Ord ordered him around. The man had no idea that McAllister had a brain. Sue liked McAllister a lot, which made Ord mad. Even though McAllister was careful to keep the woman at arm's length, Ashira didn't like that idea much either. Did McAllister like Sue? It was hard to tell. Shira had been tempted to read McAllister more than once, but she couldn't bring herself to. It felt immoral somehow. For since that night they'd found the tracer, she couldn't help but think of him as a friend. She picked up her bag, jiggled it in her hand, felt its lightness and set it down again. Two jumpsuits, a few liners and combs for her hair, all she'd brought from the bog. And there they were, she and Grandfather. Two weeks of routine scanning exercises and still a dead beacon. They could surely risk two days more, Ellison had said last night over the beamer. But she was sure he hadn't meant it. He'd not looked too pleased at the idea of their coming. Suzanne Ellison had probably nagged the invitation out of him, and now he was stuck with their acceptance. Was that it? Were things perhaps not right with those two? 
Is that what McAllister wasn't talking about? It might be. He'd seen an awful lot of the Ellisons lately. Strange. He'd not met any of them before that day in Palo Alto. Grandfather had certainly set a lot of things going. And now there McAllister was, shuttling back and forth from New Washington to Estralita and Bent Nose Peak. Bent Nose Peak. She never thought she'd be glad to see that mausoleum again. The Ellisons had a son, apparently. If he was anything like his father, she wouldn't speak to him. She darted back to the bathroom as her grandfather cut the suction air. He was stepping through into his bedroom now, picking up his liners, putting them on. Now his jumpsuit, zipping it up. One moment, surely, he called, and we'll be... She waited, straining to hear the rest. Grandfather? Grandfather, are you all right? She pushed aside the door. Grandfather! He was lying in the middle of the floor. She ran to him, turned him onto his back. His eyes were closed, he was breathing normally. She felt his pulse, normal too, and his colour was okay. She looked down on him with a thunderous face. She knew what it was now. Oh, Grandfather, how could you? You've wrecked everything. Just a few minutes more and we'd have been up and out of here. He didn't answer her, of course. He was having a vision. A finished vision? Not necessarily, though she'd bet it was. But without the aid of the synergizer? Oh, Lord, his sigh must be out of sight. Were they responsible? Or the synergizer? Or grandfather himself? Just by going through this whole thing? You got real strong legs by climbing stairs. She stood up. What was he seeing in there? She wondered, a little enviously. Ord would have a fit. By the time they strapped him in, they'll have missed scads. Whatever would Ellison say? She stood there of half a mind not to tell them. But that wouldn't work. They'd come soon to fetch them into the hopper. If they found Grandfather like that and her just sitting there, they'd be awful mad. Remembering McAllister's warning, she crossed the room slowly and reached to buzz for old. Tannis Ord stood by the synergizer in mauve pyjamas. Shira stood aside as Sook and Prosser got things going. Ord, of course, did nothing but stand and fret. Little toad. The way he always managed to let everybody else do the work. McAllister appeared in the doorway. Shira looked to him glumly. He made a face and shrugged. What can we do? The gesture said. Shira didn't have to scan to get that. Somehow... That made her feel a little better, and made her feel not quite so alone. Soon the room would fill with colour and shape. Of what? Of the young woman Tanner? The young prince? Or something else? Whatever it was, it was going through Grandfather's mind right now. If she read him, 
Would she see it too? She regarded him uneasily. He'd be so angry. And Grandfather Angry was the worst trip in the world. Still watching him, she tentatively reached out. That at least was allowed. Grandfather? No response. He wasn't aware. She reached a little farther and farther, then caught her breath sharply. Her mind filled with hazy images and more. Words, names, a voice spoke inside her head. Grandfather's voice. The great gate between Azarum, the holy mountain, and Hum, the holy lake, still stood wide as the last rays of Demiel glanced off the golden domes within the walls. Already in deep-shaded places, yellow lamps glowed from niches in whitewashed stone as the two gatekeepers emerged from their booth to shut up for the night. The T.S. flickered, lit up. Cut the lights, Ord said. A moment later, the lab filled with the golden radiance of a sunset, the lapping of water, and the thin wail of high winds. And then, and then, everyone jumped, even Shearer, as a great deep bell boomed out. The two ancients had actually cranked the gate too and were slipping the heavy bar into place when the bell tolled to announce an arrival. Once deep and slow, then again and again filling the air with loud importunate sound. Through it all, however, the gatekeepers methodically completed their ritual, and only after that did they actually toil up the winding postern stair to see who it could be. Down below, a solitary figure groveled in the fast-gathering dusk, trying to peer under the gate. A pilgrim? In those grimy, tattered rags? The old men looked askance. From across the steep valley, an animal screamed, the echo trailing long after the sound cut off. One of the men called down. Who are you? Who come to room unlooked for and at this hour? The figure scrambled to its feet. I am Brent, a uh, pilgrim. Come late to the Sohorin. Open the gate. They drew in their heads, letting the spy hatch fall shut. Dusk deepened into dark as talk waited for the old men to reappear, for the gate to grind open, for them to usher him inside. And still he waited, cursing and fuming, until at long last a light wavered above, and a chain-ladder looped down in short spastic jerks. You expect me to climb that? Him, talk of cognac, to enter room like a nocturnal thief? The ladder began to rise. With an oath, talk leapt, missed, and hit the dirt. And as he hit it, the ladder smacked the top of his head. Young man, if 
you have any mind at all to climb, then do it with speed. It is well past the time for securing the postern. The voice was mild, but firm. Talk got up, hoisted the remnants of his robe about his knees, and pulled himself up rung by rung until his fingers found the postern sill. Hans guided him over and down into the tiny turret room. He was too angry by now to feel stones scrape his shins and hit his temple. Careful, a second voice, sharp and thin as a rusted hinge. You set yourself a-bleeding. Before talk could speak, voice two was off down the turret stair, lighting the way as his partner stowed the ladder and bolted the hatch. Talk took off after him, fetching up at the bottom with such a thump against the old man that he all but knocked the torch from his hand. The old man steadied himself. You will please come. Talk seized his arm. Where to? The old man gestured to a low door halfway along the cobbled way that led under the gate. You shall make yourself comfortable while I send word of your coming. Follow me. Talk's hand tightened. No. You shall take me to my sohurin. No. The gatekeeper looked down. Not while you hold me thus, young man. In that arm the blood has ceased to flow. Talk only tightened his fingers. On, or more than blood will cease to flow. To what good? The roomy eyes glistened in the torchlight. These gates yield not to threats. Talk let go. Behind the low door was a bare white cell, furnished with a small table, an upright chair, and a narrow cot. You will please mind your head. For one moment, Talk had half a mind to snatch the old man's torch from his hand and run. But as the old gaunt had said, to what good? He ducked, went inside, and shut the door in the old man's face. There he threw himself wincing onto the hard cot and closed his eyes. Faintly through a high-barred window came snatches of a guile in the high register. Tinkling sounds, spilling out under the sky, sparkling like the cold clear stars far above the dark mountain tops. He was so tired, hungry, filthy. His left leg ached. A deep scratch in his right side throbbed with pus. Under the remnants of his hatcher, his scalp itched with stubble, and his chin sprouted three weeks of beard. How he longed for a hot bath, and fresh roasted meat, and a handle of cloth, and tanner. There, make yourself comfortable. Talk must have dozed for he hadn't heard the gatekeeper set a frosted pitcher and washbowl on the table-top. He started up, wincing, as the man set snowy towels over the chair-back. When you have washed, there will be nourishment. Talk beat him to the door. Wait, 
hasn't word gone yet that I am here? Patience, young man. All in good time. Talk pushed past him to the door, threw it wide, and ran left along the cobbled passage. The end was barred by two spear guards. At last, a language that he spoke. He reached for the first man, only to fetch up against a shaft that jarred him sorely. He tried again, and this time met empty space. How? Many times in the barracks he'd taken six such at one time. He turned on the old man angrily. Is this how Rome's cowards fight? The gatekeeper looked puzzled. Fight? We don't fight in Rome. You lie. What are these armed guards for, then? To watch, merely. Or what? For stray wild beasts that would breach our night gate? Talk looked to him sharply, but the old one's face seemed innocent enough. Sighing, he let himself be led back to his cell. As he ate, a guide came in, richly dressed as the one who'd come to him in Asadun. The Arthur and the Haler had been told of Talk's arrival, the man said, and this was their reply. Prince Talk, having missed full thirteen days of the current Zohorin, was advised to return home until another time. Talk jumped up, spilling hot chanu over the flagstones. The Kriak, you say? Who is this Arthur and this Haylar to send away the Gurnyak heir? I'll see them. They see no one after sunset, save in grave emergencies. Grave emergencies? Talk shouted. You think this isn't grave? Go now and say that I would speak with them. If not, my father shall know. The guide turned on his heel and left, shutting the door behind him. Talk threw open the door again and called for fresh food. None came. He ran out down the passage. The guards barred his way. Food, he snapped. Bring fresh food, now. The guards lowered their pikes. The gatekeeper was gone for the night, they informed him, and the inner gate was locked till dawn. Enraged, Talk would have hurled himself at them, but again, as the old gatekeeper had said, to what good? He strode back to his cell, slammed the door behind him, and scraping what he could of the charnu off the floor, ate it. Then, still hungry, he threw himself onto the cot and fell asleep. At dawn, Talk was roused and taken to a cold bathhouse to shower under icy mountain water, then handed fresh clothes. Not pilgrims' clothes, but garments like the guides, a thick blue harpile, crimson trimmed, finely embroidered in gold thread, well fit for a gentleman, not a prince. Talk turned them away. I will not put these on. I am a pilgrim. I will shave and put on the robe and hesha. 
the guide folded his arms. There are no pilgrim clothes in the outer city. This is the gear they ordered for you. As for your hair, you were wise to grow it back without delay, as befits a man of your standing, or any other traveller who would go through these mountains at this point of Demiel's ring. The snows are not too far away. I am not a traveller. I am going nowhere, I tell you. I shall not wear those clothes. Nodding, the man bent to take them up. But then talk, remembering the ladder and the last charm snatched them back, and cursing, put them on. They fitted perfectly. Without another word, the guide led him back to his cell, where a bowl of hot charnu and fresh baked shniha waited on the table. Sullenly talk et while the man waited by the door. The instant his plate was cleared, the guide produced a travelling cloak and bag. This pack will see you through the worst. The Arthur and Behela regret that you must return on foot, but no journeys are planned down the lake until the end of the latest sahur. They wish you speed, and hope you'll reach Asadun before the snows set in. The guide set cloak and bag before talk on the table and stepped back. Please feel free to leave as soon as you are ready. Talk stayed put. I'm not leaving. I demand to see the... What did you call them? The guide stepped forward and leaned over the table. I've delivered your valedictory. The gatekeepers are waiting to see you out. If you don't go now, you'll be sorry. The shelters are few and far between. You think I don't know that? Talk jumped up. On my father's life, I'll not go. Tell that to your author and your hela. Something flickered in the guide's face. So be it. He bowed his head and left. Talk paced the room until, fancying he heard footsteps outside, he stood by the door, listening. Then he paced again and sat, then fell onto the cot. Time passed. Once or twice he visited the tiny urinal in the far wall. An alcove behind a fine rush screen, washed by a spring, and fragrant with orat and fresh aram root. No one came, not even to bring him a midday meal. He remembered the travel pack. In it was whey bread, thorn cheese, hard as wood, and a flask of water. Two bites of bread and his hunger was gone. He left the open bag on the table and lay down once more on the cot. Light rays slanting in through the high window lengthened, then dimmed. He heard the change of watch and the sound of laughter across the thin mountain air. Once he heard the boom of the great gate bell. He heard the groan of hinges, the sound of greetings. He leapt up, crossed the room, and opened the door a crack. May this day be as fruitful as the last. A guide was leading a group of blue-shrouded figures past his door 
and into the city. Fur liars! Not another sovereign for another half a sun around? What was this then? He had half a mind to rush out demanding to know. On second thought, he clamped his mouth into a thin, tight line and quietly closed the door. He could wait. It was almost sunset when his guide beckoned him. Without a word, the man led him past the guards, across a yard, and through a high inner arch. Tork had his first glimpse of the holy city. Walls. Stone walls, steep and close. Walls that climbed the mountain slope. High, white walls, whose fabled golden rooftops were out of sight in mist. Mellow lamps wavered in the twilight from niches cut into those walls, while around them, like ribbons on spools, wound flights of steep steps, crossing, joining, leading everywhere. They walked and climbed the winding ways back from the gate until they reached a rough cleft in the bare mountainside. Talk laboured for breath, and his thighs burned, but his stocky guide never slowed, never gave a sign of effort. But then, Talk thought sourly, he was used to it. They entered the cleft, walked along rough tunnels, across windy caverns, climbing ever upward inside the mountain, until they came at last to a small door. Talk's chest was fairly heaving by now, and his throat was afire. Beyond the door, to Talk's surprise, was a small square chamber lined entirely with mirrored panels, even the floor and ceiling. The guide ushered Talk through the door and shut it behind him, sealing him in. Talk stood for a moment, leaning over, his hands on his knees, until his breath slowed and his blood stopped pounding in his ears. Then he straightened up and looked about him curiously. The light shafted down through slits set in the angle between wall and ceiling, the bright blue light of costly agria. The air was chilly and damp. Lucky he was hot from his climb. Time passed. He began to grow uneasy in that tight-closed space. What was he doing in there? What was that place? It felt like a mirrored cage. Did they test him, the hailer and the awful, to see how he behaved? Well, let them. He'd show them how a king's son carried himself. He held himself still for a while, until, growing restless at last, he circled the room, feeling for the door. But so tight was its fit in the mirrored panels that he couldn't find it. He went to the stool in the middle of the floor and perched with his arms about his knees. Was the air thin in there? He was beginning to feel really strange. Giddy. He spread his hands over his knees and studied them as though he'd never seen them before. 
funny things, Hans. Take his father's. Sherlock had lost the first joint of the middle finger on his right hand while taking the barren lands. Massive hands they were. Warrior's hands. How many lives had they taken in their time? How many battles won? And how many drops had they raised to froth their owner's beard? He turned his own over, thinking suddenly of Tanner, of soft flesh under his fingers, hard back, moist warmth of thigh. He jumped to his feet, snarling, clenching and unclenching his hands. Glancing up, he caught sight of himself reflected on all sides. Hundreds upon hundreds of faces twisted like a gradle's axe. A very demon army in rich bright dress, stretching back and back to infinity. Slowly he revolved, staring at himself in fascination on all sides. They kept the wild things out, did they? He drew his lips into a snarl. His jaw cut stark through the young beard, and his skull shone hard and round through the stubble. He grinned at himself, a very dryak, liking what he saw. He tipped his head back and laughed aloud. He turned faster, raising his arms upwards and outwards to meet the ranks of arms outstretched to meet them, until they all seemed linked in an endless chain of power. He stopped and closed his eyes, his head, the room, the whole inner firmament spinning about him. The author will see you. Talk started, looked up to find the mirror spaces filled with the guide's fragmented image, so filled that Talk himself was crowded out. He dove for the dark rectangle of open door and followed the guide into a high dark cavern lit by one small pool of light. On a small rush mat, in rough, unbleached, lattic robes, sat a golden man. His face, Talk saw as he approached, was oval and unlined, although he was not young. His nose was long and straight, sharp, almost. His eyes, dark-fringed, were tawny as a langor's. His golden hair, shoulder-length, was caught at the temples by a lattic cord knotted at every thumb's width. The man motioned talk to sit opposite him on the mat while at a signal another, dressed in dark brown, stepped from the shadows to place between them a low wooden table on which stood a pitcher of water and two small brass bowls. I am Arthur of the inner ring. You asked to see me? The voice was quiet, with a faint foreign inflection. Each statement ended on an upswing that gave it the air of a question. Talk nodded, and waving away the offer of water, got straight down to business. I missed the boat back in Asadun. 
a regrettable error but one for which i have surely paid the author regarded him impassively for a moment or two then he spoke it is not a matter of payment prince he smiled faintly are simply too late you've missed the initial stages of your sewing you couldn't hope to catch up talk jumped to his feet leaned down over the table i can't go home so like it or not i stay he smacked the table with his fist setting the brass bowls the pitcher singing musically on the wooden top the author kept his silence it's a strange religion you teach author talk complained you take the gifts and spurn the giver beware golden rivers can run dry it's no religion prince but a discipline for which you are poorly fitted and fortunately so the author's voice was smooth even perfectly controlled were you to come to even the most basic appreciation of our teachings your dynasty would perish he sighed to the distant roof but never fear generation after generation of the ganangars come and go unchanged paying but lip service to the quarrel i was frankly glad when the gurnyak heir did not arrive startled talk met the golden eyes the author spread his hands as for the gold i know not of that oh come now arthur the gall of the man why one can see it from asadun your very walls groan under the weight of it ah yes the golden roofs of rome the hardwood the costly perfumes of perior the green stones of grell the harsilk the oils and the wines the author once more turned his golden eyes upon talk rather than refuse tributes from misguided folk who seek to purchase favour with the quarrel instead of earning it we give it away give words failed the luthuri seek other wealth princeling the arthur informed him calmly another riddle pricking talk to anger speak more plain he demanded harshly longing now to provoke this man to goad those smooth features into some kind of expression other than a faint smile to raise that even voice to some show of emotion the lothoris burn appearance for reality they travel light huh. the lothori don't travel though we of the inner ring have not left room in one thousand generations we've travelled farther than any other in the known world in spirit riddles 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 talk harked back to the one uppermost in his mind you say you give away all this treasure to whom i want to know to the wraithy prince and why not they prize such things and they serve the lothuri well wraithy i never heard of them 
the Arthur's eyes gleamed. You met one in Asadun? They are our worldly eyes and ears, our guards, our custodians and guides. Aha! Talk understood him now. Why, they're nothing but your milks dressed up in finery. You treat them too well, Arthur. Take a tip from me. The Arthur didn't acknowledge him. Their ministrations free the Lothari to live the inner life and serve the pilgrims who come here. They are, if you like, the body and mind, the outer wealth of room, while the Lothari are the soul, the inner treasure, buried where most men never see. Talk regarded him doubtfully. In Gurniak, a man's measure was nailed up in blood for all to know and fear. If the Wraithy live out there under the golden domes, then where do the Luthori live? Here, under the Kaharavim. Kaharavim? Our way of life? The very mountain itself? The author's voice took on a final note. I regret I can speak with you no longer. Your guide is by the door. Take heart, Prince. There's always another time. What? Was he dismissed? Quickly, Talk drew his last weapon. I was told there'd be no news to Horans for another half sun around, he said, even as the guide came forward to escort him out. And yet only this afternoon, newly arrived pilgrims entered the gate. The Arthur nodded. And they wore blue, not white, if you remember signifying that they come for their second Sohurim at the eleventh level, having already survived their first at the twelfth. Blue, white, return. The Arthur appealed to the distant roof. How great is the pride of the Kanangars! that they nurture their ignorance with such care. He fixed talk with such a look of infinite patience as made talk's blood boil. Prince, there are twelve steps on the inner path. Each step has its own disciplines and goals, and its own symbolic colour. Those of the eleventh step were blue. Talk felt a stirring of hope. He knelt down before the table, leaned forward eagerly. To take the eleventh level, is it a law that one must complete the twelfth first? The author evidently catching his drift, smiled again, his faint smile. No, but what fool would embark on a second, more hazardous journey, unless he has completed the first? Dork smacked his chest. Why, this fool, Arthur! I shall stay. On the eleventh, Level. Prince, each level is more difficult than the last. The smile was now tinged with pity. Of those who come across the lake in white, full half of them don't stay the course. This newly arrived group 
above thirty men and women. Women? Talk's eyes widened. Have paid their dues in full? Talk leaned back. Nevertheless, I shall stay. The Arthur looked at him most strangely then. You are a determined young man. You, who've not even learned to control your body, let alone your mind. Talk stood up, looking down on the golden man from his full height. I have the greatest control of any man alive, save Sherlock. With my bare hands alone, I can fell a dozen. And yet you can't keep still for more than a few moments together. So the Chamber of Mirrors had been a test after all. Talk's eyes darkened. Well, let the man think what he will. Cognac would prevail. I shall stay, then. The Arthur looked him up and down curiously. Tell me, talk, Prince, in the Chamber of Mirrors, what did you see? Talk considered. I saw myself multiplied to the power of infinity, stretching in all directions, line upon line of me, going for ever. At last, a fleeting flash in the golden eyes of triumph or relief. What you attempt is impossible, yet I'll not refuse you. You may stay as long as you can, talk pilgrim, as long as you can. A wave of the hand and the golden eyes closed. The guide stepped forward and took Talk's arm. The interview was over.